You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which, were, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for this beginning uh, phase of this gospel according to Luke, of the coming of our King. So we pray, Lord, uh, we recognize that without your grace that our efforts in this place would be vain. Uh, And so we pray for illumination's light pray that you would uh, speak powerfully through the power of your spirit, the, your word this evening, that we might uh, sit joyfully underneath it and see the King Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. It's good to see you all here. As I say nearly every year, this first Sunday of this Advent season, I know that 
all of our experiences uh, as kids were different growing up, but Christmas time was just like my absolute favorite time of the year. Uh, every year it was this grand story that just swirled along, and like every grand stories, there's a, there are characters and there are settings. Uh, Christmas Eve at my grandparents' house, uh, presents around the tree, taking your picture with Santa at the mall or something, like the mall was a great time. Uh, and there was history of past Christmases and experiences, the future suspense of seemingly never-ending waiting and waiting and waiting, and then the climax and resolution of Christmas Eve, then turning into Christmas Day, uh, all of the elements of a great and good story. So like every year, we want to be, just as Kyle was saying, a, a more, more intentional in building toward Christmas, to force a bit more waiting of expectation and hope. Hope is a future-oriented term. That's why as, as a kid, Christmas is this magical season. It's absolutely and certainly coming, Christmas Day is. It forces you as a child to long for that day of December 25th more than the day that you're currently living in. Like, right when you're a child, Christmas Eve cannot come more quickly. These are seasons in which we actually don't think, or I don't think that we have to really struggle through and wrestle with very often. Sometimes we're, or most often throughout the year, we're living for the now, for the present. I mean, how many of you were actually uncomfortable in the time that Kyle just had a sit in silence? Like when in the last week were you actually bored to have to sit with your thoughts, to have to sit and to pray and to wait and to long? Now, I know my kids still have this sense of expectation for Christmas, but my guess is this sense of longing and expectation has waned considerably among you if you've grown um, as an adult and in knowing many of your stories and your lives, uh, Christmas can actually be a time that isn't all gumdrops and candy canes, that there are a lot of bad memories and pain that come along with Christmas. There have been broken or lost relationships, and Christmas just inevitably brings and drums all that back up. So as we build in hope before Christmas, in Jesus's first advent, his first coming, that's all the word advent means, just coming, his first coming, it is our expectation that God will grow in us a greater hope and longing for his second advent, his second coming. And so in previous years, while we've taken a three or four week break from whatever book that we are preaching through to consider these themes of Christmas and these themes of Jesus's first and second advents, uh, this year we're just going to go straight into a new book. We finished the book of Ruth last week, and we're just going to start a new book, this gospel according to Luke, right away. And Lord willing, the timing is just going to play out, I think, pretty well. We'll get to Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes on Christmas Eve, and then the angels singing glory to God on the highest on that Sunday, Christmas Day. Christmas is on a Sunday this year, and I can't wait to be with all of you then. But before we get into the text of the narrative beginning in verse 5, let's take just a second to set up this whole book and think through the preface that Luke writes in verses 1 through 4 of this gospel. First of all, this is the gospel according to Luke. Uh, Luke didn't write that first uh, in his first draft of this thing. These are is a later title added by later editors, uh, but just saying the gospel or good news according to Luke. Back in 2017 and 18, we walked through the gospel or the good news according to John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these first four books of the New Testament are all gospel accounts. These are four different chroniclers who are writing down eyewitness perspectives of what Jesus of Nazareth said, taught, did, and accomplished. 
And so while some of these gospels have more overlap with each other than others, they are all a little different. Like if you read just straight through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice some differences. Just as the same as if I like asked you yesterday what happened in the USA-Netherlands game, you would give me a different perspective uh, from your couch watching it on TV than if I asked someone who was at the game and sitting in the stands, which their perspective would then be different from like a photographer who was sitting behind one of the goals. And their perspective would certainly be different than Christian Pulisic's. Four different perspectives that are all the same true, but are all different. And so while Luke doesn't identify himself here in this gospel as the writer, reasonable and reliable church tradition identifies Luke, the good doctor, as the writer. At the very end of Colossians, Paul addresses or makes uh, uh, mention of Luke, the beloved physician who greets the Colossian church. If it weren't for that reference at the, bottom, at the back or in the very end of the letter of Colossians, we wouldn't know that Luke is a physician or a doctor, but that we know now. But he says... Luke does, that he is undertaking to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished, accomplished as testified by eyewitnesses as an orderly account. And he addresses someone named Theophilus, the very same person that he addresses in the first verse of the book of Acts. The book of Acts, otherwise known as we could call the book of Acts, Luke 2, Luke part 2. Luke 1 and Luke 2. Luke Acts is one continuing story. And so some people think that since Theophilus literally Uh, means lover of God, Theo and Philus, the lover of God, that Luke just wrote this for anyone out there who might be a lover of God, who might uh, want to know that the promises of God have been realized now through Christ. But considering that in ancient times, scrolls and ink and just the whole process of writing something like the book of Acts or this gospel according to Luke would have been very expensive. You couldn't just sit down and type out your thoughts and on your laptop or something. You were likely hiring professional scribes and the papyrus scroll itself would have been about 30 feet long to unroll. More than likely, Theophilus here is a wealthy Christian who has paid for and who has commissioned this entire work for Luke to uh, go out and find out what happened with this Jesus of Nazareth. But no history is impartial. There's no way for any writer of history to just give us the bare facts. All historians all have their own beliefs, their own assumptions. They highlight and emphasize things for a reason. And I'm just really appreciative that Luke tells us, just comes right out front and tells us why he's doing this, why he's compiling this history, why he tells Theophilus and us in Luke chapter 1 verse 4, he says, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so in an introduction to Luke, one commentator says that Luke is probing and then trying to answer so many different kinds of questions that then might lead to answers of certainty about who Jesus is. So questions that we're going to be thinking through over the next many months together in this book, like how did a Jewish movement become an offer of salvation for all people? How do Gentiles, that is like non-Jews, really belong to the people of God? If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, why did he meet so much opposition from amongst his own people? Even more than that, how does a crucified Messiah become the hope of all humanity? How can an absent, slain figure be the centerpiece of God's plan of salvation? How is that possible? Or in sum, why should anyone, why should anyone in this room or anyone in the world through all of time and space respond to Jesus as the center of God's plan, and what is it that he calls us to do? 
Virtually every single unit or section in Luke's gospel challenges us to respond to Jesus. What is Jesus calling us to do? Now, we know that every part of Scripture is really about Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself says that, as we'll see in Luke 24, that all of the law and the prophets are about him. And we've said many times before, especially of Old Testament books and passages, that all of, all of those Old Testament books and passages act as like setting the stage for the main character, making sure the props and the lighting and the sound is just right, so that then when the main character comes on the stage, he's walking into an already developed story. What he is teaching and doing actually makes sense because of we understand the stage on which he's walking. And if we don't understand the setting and the context onto which the main character walks, then we really don't understand what the main character is actually doing, what he's saying, what he's teaching, what he's confronting, what he's calling into. And so every single book of the Bible is crucial to understanding Jesus. Our God does not waste words. Every single book of the Bible matters and is important. And yet, man, do I love the Gospels. The Gospels are just the main character on the stage, doing and teaching, inviting us to know him. And it's my hope and prayer that over many weeks and months together through Luke that we will know, that we will understand, that we will love, and we will obey Jesus more and more closely, that we will be challenged to respond to him, and that we are drawn into deeper love of him and for him and with him. Okay, that's enough intro. Uh, we really need to get here to this introductory story of Zechariah in light of everything that I have just said, that Jesus is the main character, front and center in the gospel accounts. He ain't here. Uh, he actually isn't here in all of chapter one. Uh, we won't see the name of Jesus until next week, and then we won't actually meet him until Christmas Eve. Uh, well into chapter two. But the story here in chapter one is continuing the narrative of the Old Testament. It's building tension for his arrival. So we're going to break this short story up into two narrative halves. First of all, just an overwhelming intervention, and then secondly, a speechless response. So an overwhelming intervention followed by a speechless response. So let's first think about this, what this overwhelming intervention is. In verse 5, Luke tells us this, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So here we're introduced to a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. We don't immediately know who they are. These are new characters to us. We don't know how or why they will be important to this story. But Luke tells us right away that they are righteous, that they are blameless. This doesn't mean righteous in the way that Paul generally will use the word in his uh, letters as a, like a positional righteous, righteousness that they have like earned their way into God's favor or acceptance by a life of good works or something like that, but that Zechariah and Elizabeth, among others in the Old Testament who are called righteous, like Noah or Abraham or David or Job, this couple is carrying on a long line of Israel who do not just live their lives however they want. They don't just wake up in the morning and think, what is it that I would like to do? What is it that I would like to believe or think or be today? And then just do that. No, they have made it their whole life to be about caring what God says and then seeking to obey him. In other words, while they are definitely not sinless, they live their lives before God with integrity. 
There is like no unrepentant sin in their lives with which others could accuse them. And yet, verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Like many other women throughout the Old Testament, there is zero indication here that childlessness was a result of sin. Again, just the opposite with Elizabeth. She is righteous. She is blameless, but like Sarah and like Rebecca and like Rachel and Hannah, among many others, difficulty in childbearing, one of the Genesis 3 realities of living in a cursed and broken world of sin and suffering, is here a very real and experienced reality for the righteous and blameless Elizabeth. Now, during our time in the book of Ruth, we thought about the importance of heirs, like H-E-I-R-S, of heirs, particularly of sons in the ancient world, of providing generational security and provision, not only to one day pass along the things that I might own of myself, my possessions and holdings, but that a future generation of sons and grandsons then might actually care for me in my older age. And it's in this older age that Zechariah and Elizabeth find themselves with no way of securing Uh, a life of provision for themselves. Once they can no longer work, who will care for them? But childlessness isn't just a place of social difficulty for the ancients, of providing for yourself when you're unable to work or provide for yourself, but it is a place, an enduring place of emotional difficulty for people today, for people in this room. As one pastor writes about childlessness, undoubtedly, Earlier in Zechariah's and Elizabeth's marriage, people would come up to them and ask them, so, so when are you guys going to have kids? Not knowing that even that question was hurtful, as they were trying, they wanted children. And then after many years, those questions slowly turned into words of condolence. Maybe not, when are you going to have kids, but we're praying for you. And then, perhaps Elizabeth assuming and fearing that she had been specifically and individually singled out by God, then maybe the rest of her community, assuming the same, that she might be fearing that the ladies around the corner are whispering about her, you know that she can't have kids, right? She is, verse 7, and here's a word that we really ever only use about the desert. She is barren. The very bottom here of this section of Scripture here in verse 25 said that she had in previous years, felt reproach. She had felt disgrace, shame, stigma. Elizabeth and Zechariah had now, with undoubtedly gallons and gallons of tears throughout the decades, begun begun to adjust to the discouraging reality that they once maybe could not have children to now a settled place that they would not have children. Now, before we move on, and since I've already acknowledged the presence of many of you in this room who have experienced long periods of infertility, many others with miscarriages or stillbirths, can I just say I'm so sorry? I'm sad with you. I'm sad for you. This is not the reality of created good that God intends or has intended for creation. Death is our experience, but it is not forever. We've talked about like the pinch test of the Bible, that you can take Genesis 1 and 2 on this side, that there is only good, that there is only life 
in the first two chapters of the Bible. And then you can take Revelation 21 and 22 over here, the last two chapters of the Bible. There is only good. There is only life on these two chapters and these two chapters. But then everything else in the Bible describes our reality. Of childlessness or the death of children is perhaps the most personal, the most affecting suffering and loss that we humans are perhaps capable of suffering, of experiencing. And yet through it all, Zechariah and Elizabeth, undoubtedly crying gallons and gallons of tears and having all of these questions, these feelings of loss and even shame, they were righteous. They were blameless. They trusted in God's goodness and in his wisdom. Undoubtedly, the stories of God's faithfulness in and through other stories of loss, of death, of infertility in the history of God's people brought them comfort, even if they did not bring them answers. Undoubtedly, the Psalms of lament gave them theological grounding for questioning, for crying out to God in faith rather than crying out to God in cynicism. Another pastor has once written, did you know that you can block out the noonday sun with a quarter. All you have to do is bring the quarter right up to your eye. We sometimes hold our problems and limitations to our eyes in that way, bringing them so close to our eyes that we cannot see the great glowing sun of God's promises and God's power. When our eyes are on our problems, we will not remember God's word and how it applies to us. Again, does that mean that our problems are not very real? That the quarter is not very real and can indeed come straight up into our vision. No. Does it mean that loss and death isn't just heartbreakingly real and felt in our lives? Of course not. But it does mean that there is hope. There is light beyond the dark. That God's promises are true and real. Or as we sing in the song, Christ, our hope in life and death, what truth can calm the troubled soul? Church, what truth can calm the troubled soul? That God is good, that God is good, that he is not just powerful, he is, but that he is good. Now, I know I've just barely skimmed the surface on wounds that might go like to the very bottom of your soul. And if you need to talk to somebody after the service, if you need, to, you need someone to just sit and cry with you a bit, um, will you just share these troubles with someone else in this room? someone that you know and trust. And if you don't know or trust anyone in this room yet, will you come and talk to me? Maybe even tonight, I'd love to meet and talk and pray and just sit and listen and cry tonight. We can do that. But back to the elderly Zechariah. Zechariah is one of likely about 18,000 priests of Israel. And he's now in Jerusalem doing his twice a year service at the temple. Twice a day, the priests would cast lots, kind of like rolling dice, to see which priest of the many would get to go into the temple and offer incense inside the holy place. If you were around when we've gone through the books of either Exodus or Leviticus, this isn't, this isn't the most holy place, the holy of holies, but the inner sanctuary just outside of the holy of holies where the altar and the lampstand and the showbread were. And if the lots ever fell on you, because there are so many priests, 18,000 of them, this becomes like a once-in-a-lifetime honor. If you get to go in and burn the incense, your name is no longer considered for going in ever again for the rest of your life. And so here we are at the temple in Jerusalem, 
And Zechariah has just found out, maybe this morning, that this day has now suddenly become the most important day of his entire life. He thought that he was just going to work outside the temple, and now he has just found he's going inside the temple. He's read about the holy place. He likely has Exodus and Leviticus memorized, so he knows exactly what it's going to look like when he goes inside, but he has never seen it in his entire life. And he goes in to offer incense for the people, for their prayers, who are all outside praying. And he goes in, and he realizes that while this is indeed the most important day of his life, it just got way crazier than he could have ever imagined. Now, when he goes inside, on the tapestries of the wall, there are angelic imageries uh, woven into these tapestries. Uh, but as far as Zechariah knows, uh, maybe, maybe he thinks, like, this is, this is normal, and then it's just been one giant secret that's been held from him, that you go in and you see an angel. Uh, but he knows. He thought that he would have stories for his beloved Elizabeth when he got home to her, but immediately he knows the most important day of his life just got crazy. An angel is standing right next to the altar, and just like happens when anyone in the scriptures meets a heavenly messenger of the Lord, Zechariah is terrified. As blameless and righteous as Zechariah is, he knows immediately that he does not belong in the presence of something so pure, something or a being so holy. But immediately the angel, who we later find out is named Gabriel, says this to Zechariah. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, wait, what? Like, Zechariah has to be thinking, like, I was just coming in here to offer incense on behalf of the people. First of all, how do you know my name? How do you know my wife's name? How do you know that we have been praying for a child, for a son, for decades? And wait, what did you just say? But Gabriel keeps going. He doesn't let Zechariah even ask any of those questions. He keeps going to further show that his announcement to Zechariah is not just for Zechariah, not just for Elizabeth. Verse 14, he says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In scenes reminiscent of the barren Hannah with her coming son Samuel in 1 Samuel 1, Gabriel tells Zechariah that God is once again on the move. In 1 Samuel 1, things have been so dark, so uh, quiet and so evil for so long during the time of the judges. And then God comes and gives Hannah the child Samuel who will prepare the people for a coming king, David. Similarly, here, things have been so dark, so quiet for so long. God had not moved or spoken in the past 400 years since the time of the prophet Malachi. And apart from the fact that Zechariah and Elizabeth will actually have a son, the answer to their most fervent prayers, God is answering not just their prayers, but the prayers and the hopes of a nation. Gabriel says that a baby 
and the spirit and power of Elijah will be born. And the last time that God spoke in Malachi 4, the second to the last verse of what we call the Old Testament, God says this, Malachi 4 verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Before that great and awesome day comes. And so for 400 years, the people had been waiting and wondering, is God even real? Is he still there? Are we still his people? Do the promises of Abraham and David, are those still in effect? Will God ever move and speak again? And then boom, like in this holy of holies, or right outside of it, in the temple mount, an old man, here's news that yes, their hopes have been answered. O come, O come, Emmanuel. It is happening. Aslan is on the move. The snow is beginning to melt. Springtime is coming. This baby will not only preach repentance, but reconciliation amongst families and generations. And crucially, like Samuel before David, he will prepare a people. At this point, we don't know what it means when he will prepare a people for the Lord. This word, the Lord, is just the word for God. The general term of Elohim. But Gabriel says that God is coming. This baby, who you will call John, will prepare the people for God, the coming of God. And it is to Elizabeth and Zechariah, these old people, old man, old woman, that this baby of hope will come. Very similar to Abraham and Sarah. It is this promise that Zechariah receives. What truth can calm the troubled soul? That God is good. That God is good. God is answering prayers far more, far greater, far more graciously than Zechariah could have ever prayed in his life. They had for decades prayed for a baby, and now God is answering their prayer, not just for a baby, but in the coming of God again to his people. Now, does this mean... That if we just have enough faith and hope that if we are blameless and righteous and we continue to pray that God will answer our prayers exactly the way in which we want him to? There were for sure other priests over the past 400 years who were blameless and righteous, who also lived their entire life and then died without ever having children, without ever having their prayer for children answered who lived and died in centuries of silence from God, wondering if he was real, but continuing in faith. We tend toward thinking, if I could have just lived in Old Testament times, then my faith would be greater. No, it wouldn't. The overwhelming majority of people in Israel's history never saw anything stunningly miraculous. Often generations upon generations upon generations never sing a miraculous movement of God. And even those who did, just after a couple of years, sometimes after a couple of hours after seeing the miraculous movement of God, they quickly forgot what God had done and relied upon themselves again. Their faith had all but evaporated. That quick. The faithful people of God are not the ones who see or even externally experience his miraculous provision. The faithful people of God are the ones who are internally enamored with his glory, with his beauty. Not his gifts, but his character. 
Not if he answers prayers, but that he answers prayers. Sometimes not in the way that we would want him to, but in his good wisdom. God is good. God is good. And so Gabriel is here delivering an overwhelming intervention. God is, yes, intervening in the bodily and biological processes that have, for whatever reason, for the past many decades, prevented Elizabeth from conceiving. Even more, though, God is now intervening overwhelmingly in the sad, sinful, oppressed story of Israel. Even more than that, God is intervening in the sad, sinful, oppressed story of humanity. It begins. It begins. Here we go. Aslan is on the move. To which we could expect Zechariah to fall on his knees in tears of gratitude, of thankfulness, and of joy. But now we'll see, secondly, a speechless response. Now, his initial response isn't literally speechless. He talks. He asks questions. But I figured that this is still a good title heading for how we often use the word speechless. Like when we say that word, we say, oh gosh, oh man, I'm speechless. I don't even know what to say. But let me go on now for a few paragraphs. That's not speechless. If you ever hear someone say, man, I'm so speechless, and then they go on to keep talking, you can say, you're a liar. You're full of speech, not speechless. But this is exactly how Zechariah responds. He's, He's like, gosh, wow, I'm speechless. What should I say? How can this happen? I'm an old man, and my wife is old. He's almost saying, like, are you sure you got the right guy? Did you, are you late by a day? Are you sure you weren't supposed to come yesterday when the, speech, the, the priest who was offering the incense was like 28 or something? Maybe that would have been a better promise to make to someone who can actually have children. My wife and I cannot have children. Now, on the one hand, this is totally understandable. There are these kinds of responses of kind of like the, but how will this happen all over the Bible? from Abraham and Gideon to many, many others. How can this be? In fact, we'll see even Mary ask a very similar question next week. But here, Gabriel, the messenger of God, has given Zechariah a message from God that Zechariah is evidently intended to tell the world in joy, not just his wife. But since Zechariah doubts this message, the angel essentially tells this priest, okay, If you're not going to go home and tell your wife and tell everyone everything that you've just heard, then why don't you just be quiet for a while and just watch God work? It was God's work all along, but now instead of getting to be the joyful messenger of good news, Zechariah is now confined to be a silent observer of good news. In some ways, this is how we always work and act as human beings. Despite our faithlessness, God is faithful. We become and we are the passive recipients of his grace. After all, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And if God struck every human mute every time they responded in faithlessness, this story of humanity would be like a silent film. It would just be quiet all the time. But Luke is setting up two themes here for the rest of the book. Right off the bat, that's going to continue on all the way to the end. And the first is this, that the kingdom of God is breaking in. The king is beginning his parade of victory and coronation. 
So Luke here is inviting us, even in this story, even in Zechariah's faithlessness, asking us, will you join? Will you join in and follow the king in his praise and victory and his joy? Here are these words of victory. Here are these words of the overwhelming intervention of God, that the king, even in a world of loss and sin and suffering, this king is a good king, and he is coming. He is wise, and he is the conqueror, the final conqueror of all sin and all death. He will come to live. He will come to die. He will come to be raised to new life. He will, become, he will come to be then ascended into glory for the rest of eternity, to free you from your sins, to free you to hope and life. Will you join him? Will you give him your allegiance? Will you give him your life? He is worth it. Respond to him in faith. The kingdom of God is breaking in. But a second thing here that Luke is setting up, really for the next section in chapter one, but then continuing to the, next, the rest of the book, is that God uses and works through the unexpected. Now we would expect a blameless and righteous priest of God to respond well, to respond full of faith, wouldn't we? Like if anybody is going to respond with faith, it's going to be this blameless and righteous priest. But he doesn't. In fact, who does? We're not going to spoil next week's sermon, but this is just setting up in Zechariah a contrast of an unexpected outsider, of a weak and marginalized teenage girl. The humble and the needy being the ones who actually first come to God and the ones who God ultimately then will elevate. A great reversal of earthly fortunes. And so Zechariah can't speak. We'll see the rest of his story play out in a couple of weeks in chapter 2, but he has to learn some sign language real quick to explain what's been going on in there. He's been in there for way too long, and the people have lots of questions. So he comes outside, and they're like, what have you been doing? We've been waiting on you. You've been in there for way too long. And he's like, Like, if you're listening to this on the podcast tomorrow, that made no sense. Uh, that skipped everything. But, like, he's my, the, an angel just told me that my old wife is pregnant. This is amazing. And sure enough, if God says it, it will happen. The old woman, Elizabeth, who had lived her life under at least what she had perhaps interpreted as the scornful eyes and opinions of others because of her infertility, conceives a baby. And she says this in verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach among people. Now there's a lot going on in that verse, and there's a lot going on in how God has come to her, but at least the thing that she has experienced is that she feels like she can fit in. She's felt like an outsider, but God has come to include her, to reemphasize that she belongs to the people of God. Now again, Luke 1 makes no promises to modern-day women struggling through infertility. But Luke 1 shows us a God who hears. A God who responds and acts in wisdom and love. Gabriel comes and tells Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. 
just as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, to bring your request to the Lord because he cares. He listens. He knows he cares. He is not aloof. He longs to comfort. Sometimes not out of disappointing circumstances, but through them. That we might actually know and trust him, trust in his character, not just in what he provides, not just in his gifts. And every single one of us in this room needs to hear that. Every single one of us in this room is dealing with some varying level of disappointment, of infertility, of singleness, of physical sickness, of chronic pain, perhaps of job loss or financial difficulty, of being in a disappointing marriage or a job you feel stuck in, of being passed over for a promotion, of your parents or your siblings treating you really, really unkindly or selfishly, of perhaps your growing children causing you heartache, perhaps even in their rejection of the Lord. Disappointment upon disappointment upon disappointment. And I've got news for you, it's not going to slow down. This life is a disappointing life, and it will continue to be. Despite, though, what some of us try to project of ourselves, none of us in this room have some perfectly put together, perfectly content, not disappointed life. You might be thinking, oh yeah, this church thing, this gospel is for other people, but not for me. This gospel is for people who have their lives put together, who are not dealing with so much loss and disappointment. These people, belonging to them is good for them, but is not for me because I am outside them. They don't know about me. They don't know about my difficulties and pains and losses. Luke is here to tell you, I am here to tell you that this gospel of Jesus, this people in this room, this God of grace and of love and of wisdom and of provision and of comfort is for you today. It is for all of us, this gospel of belonging, this God of grace and of comfort is for all of us in this room, that we might belong to one another, that we might bear one another's burdens, that we might share in each other's tears and in each other's triumphs. And this Christmas season is a season of waiting in hope because our lives are disappointing. It is a season of building, of exercising muscles, of strengthening our trust in a God who will act and will make all things right. Of strengthening this muscle of a settled trust that God will bring an end to suffering and will bring an end to shame and to death even if he does all of that well beyond our own lives, if he does so generations from now, if he does so millennia from now, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. That is a season and a song of waiting, of hope. And yet even though that song places us in a time and a space in which we are waiting of a coming king. He has not come yet. In Israel waiting for Jesus' first coming, us waiting for Jesus' second coming, we can then say, rejoice. Rejoice. 
Emmanuel, God with us, will come and make all things new and make all things right, even through unexpected means, sometimes not answering our prayers in exactly the way that we would want him to, but in wisdom and in joy because he is the king and we just follow along in his train. As his people, sometimes with tears, but following our good and righteous king. This gospel is really great. It's really crazy, unexpected things happening that we're going to see even next week. So perhaps read the rest of chapter one. Uh, Chapters one and chapters two are really long, uh, but there's some crazy things happening in here, and it's a great story, and it is this story that God is inviting us into. Not us applying Luke to our lives, but Luke applying us into his gospel, the story of King Jesus. Let's pray that he might do that over these coming months. Our God and Father, we recognize you as wise, as the God and creator of, over all of the cosmos. You know and you are over all things, and yet you even know and are over us. Your people, your corporate people made up of individuals with specific and individual troubles and losses and tears, and yet you know them all. You're a God who wants to hear. You are a God that wants to intervene, overwhelmingly so. And we are so thankful that you have intervened into time and space and history, that you have intervened into our lives with your grace, Lord Jesus, that you have invited us to know you. I I invited us to be identified in your life and death and resurrection, and it is to the cross of Christ that all of this is moving and heading, that we place our only hope your life for ours, your death for ours, that we might be forgiven by God who loves us. And we pray that during this time of this, our walk through this gospel, that we might know you, trust you, love you even more. And we pray all these things for your glory and for our own comfort and good. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.